The New Testament does not clearly command the release of slaves. And slaves are at times told to submit to their masters. It sounds like the New Testament approves of slavery. But we know that slavery is morally wrong. Therefore, the New Testament approves of something that is morally wrong. Or so the critic's argument goes. For the Christian, the struggle might sound like this. We believe the scripture is the word of God. And it seems like God's word approves of something that we know is morally wrong. Therefore, how can we trust it for instructions on how to live our lives? And your pastors want you to read the Bible and love the Bible and be shaped by the Bible. But can we actually trust the Bible if it endorses slavery? And here's a hard and complicated truth. People who have claimed to be followers of Jesus have supported slavery from the Bible. They've claimed divine authority for their racism. It remains a profound tragedy that some Christians oppose the abolition of slavery with Bible verses on their lips. Denominations were birthed out of it. But it's even more complicated than that. Because at the same time, when it comes to the transatlantic slave trade or the civil rights movement, it was also Christians like William, uh, William Wilberforce who, who led the dismantling of slavery. Historian Alvin Schmidt points out that two-thirds of the American abolitionists in the mid-1830s were Christian clergymen, significant leaders like Elijah Lovejoy and Charles Finney and Theodore Weld, and the list goes on and on. Later, it was preachers like Martin Luther King Jr. who led the March for Civil Rights in the United States, consistently referencing and quoting and alluding to the Scripture. But as President Lincoln pointed out in the Civil War, both sides were quoting the Bible. Who is right? Who is wrong? Who's being faithful to the scripture? Who's being unfaithful? We need to take a deeper look. And that's what we're going to do today. Uh, we've been studying the letter of Ephesians. We're towards the end of our study, only a few weeks you know, to go. But in chapters 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul is working within the structure of what is known as household codes, Greco-Roman household codes that regulated the behavior of certain relationships between husband and wife and between parents and child and between master and slave. And he's working within these, these Greco-Roman household codes, but he's applying the gospel, the good news about Jesus, in a way that subverts or surprises the cultural expectations. And so, for example, Paul writes, the husband is the head of the wife. No surprise there, his hearers would have expected that. Then Paul goes on to say that husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. A husband must give up his life to you know, serve and honor his wife. That would have been a surprise. That, that would have upended everything his first century hearers thought they knew about the relationship between husbands and wives. Paul also tells children to obey their parents. No surprise there. It's part of the Ten Commandments. It was expected. But then Paul goes on to write, Fathers, don't exasperate your children and bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. 
The father in particular is told to watch how he acts and speaks towards his children. Children are a nuisance. They're to be nurtured and nurtured by the father as well. He must be actively involved in their religious education. That wouldn't be surprising for a Jewish father, but for a Greco-Roman father, that would be very shocking, very surprising. What about this issue of masters and slaves? Let me read to you the text for today. Starting in chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 5, says this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. There are a lot of surprises in this text that would have shocked his first century hearers. But first, we need to understand what the word slave means. It's the Greek word doulos, and it can mean slave or servant. Here it's translated as slave. And there is evidence that some slaves were treated brutally in the first century, depending on their master. Slaves often didn't have rights. They were viewed as property by many while in servitude. Greek philosophers like Aristotle thought they were meant to be slaves by nature. They were unfit for any other role. Slavery in the first century could be brutal, but it's also different than our common understanding. Like our understanding is shaped by movies like 12 Years a Slave or, or race-based uh, chattel slavery, which is a profound and horrific evil. In the first century, things were different. Uh, in the Roman Empire, slaves comprised approximately one-third of the population of important cities like Ephesus, and they were represented in all spheres of society, right? Blue-collar, white-collar, educated, uneducated, all different spheres of society, all different ethnicities. Uh, not only that, slavery was sometimes chosen by those who, who did not have the means to repay outstanding debts as the best option. And in many circumstances, slaves could earn money, own property, and even buy their own freedom. And so this led to the institution of slavery being, uh, being in this constant state of flux. Because whereas, you know, new slaves were constantly inserted into the system through various ways, um, it's also estimated from the years 81 BC to 49 BC, 16,000 slaves per year were released from their servitude. In this context, when a slave was freed, it did not necessarily mean that their situation was any better. In fact, it could get a lot worse if they removed themselves from under the protection and provision of a rich master. That is why, you know, even when slaves were freed, they often stayed in the same household. And so let me just sum up the differences between the first century and what we often think about when we hear the word slave. I'll quote a scholar here. I know I'm doing a lot of teaching, but stick with me. Quote, in the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, 
by speech, or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions. Some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service or by their 30s at the latest. They were not denied the right of public assembly and were not socially segregated, at least in the cities. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. Their natural inferiority was not assumed. In other words, slavery, as understood by the original hearers of the New Testament, was this diverse and complex social phenomenon. And for this reason, some translators have chosen to translate the word as servant or as bond servant to help us, you know, avoid wrong assumptions and understandings. Because in some ways, the word slave or doulos in the New Testament is describing a different reality than what we're familiar with in our recent history. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 10 condemns the capturing of a human being and selling them into slavery. Right? This verse alone is clear enough to condemn the slave trade that we're more familiar with in our recent history. Now, in the Ephesians passage we're studying today, Paul recognizes that this master-slave dynamic was a given reality, reflected in the culture and in the church. It was not an institution that was going away in a day. As such, the Apostle Paul regulates the behavior of those who are caught up in it in surprising ways. And so he tells slaves to obey their masters with, with deep reverence, with respect, he tells them to do their jobs well, finish you know, their assignments, earn favor through your sincerity and hard work, not just when people are looking, but when people aren't looking. Know that your master is ultimately Jesus in heaven and he will reward you in the end. But through it all, he's addressing them in public as dignified persons who can make a choice, which was very shocking. And then what he says to the masters is even more surprising and subversive. He tells them, you also have a master named Jesus. Treat your slaves the way you would want to be treated in their situation. This is applying Jesus' golden rule to slavery. No threatening, no abuse. You both have the same master in heaven and he doesn't play favorites. As you look over the shoulders of your workers, the God of the universe is looking over your shoulders. So watch how you treat people in your employ. This significantly regulates the behavior of those who were involved in the institution, which was a huge segment of society. Now, the New Testament does more than just regulate the behavior of the individuals participating in this institution in a surprising way for the culture and context. Uh, the New Testament does more than just tell masters to be kind and slaves to be respectful and hardworking. The Apostle Paul and the New Testament as a whole do something far subtler and with far more potential to produce long-term change, not just in social structures, but in the hearts of people. And let me explain with an illustration that my friend Peter once used. Um, there's this giant plant and it's called the giant hogweed. And forgive me, I'm not a gardener, so you know, I might get some details wrong, but there's this big plant, it's not friendly, it's not inconspicuous. A giant hogweed can grow anywhere from two meters to seven meters tall. And apparently this plant can you know, burn you, it can cause welts to form on your body with minimal contact. 
Uh, the hogweed is, is also disastrous for local ecology. Like, um, the problem is, though, you can't just chop it down. Like, you can't, you can't take an axe to it. It's very inefficient. And so is attempting to pull it up by its roots. The roots are too strong and deep. The plant will just grow back with a vengeance. The best way to kill the plant, and forgive me if you love plants, I do as well, but the best way to kill the plant so that it's gone for good is to inject some herbicide into the stalk. And the herbicide will poison the entire plant, causing it to wither and wilt from the inside out. And I want to suggest to you, that is what the New Testament does with the institution of slavery. Let me quote another pastor and theologian. He writes, slavery was so pervasive in that day that attacking it would be like demanding that all Christians today give up their home mortgages, to use the apt illustration of one commentator. To attack slavery straight up would not do any good, would make the condition of Christian slaves far worse, and would result in the marginalization of the Christian faith. And the end result of that would be that the evils of slavery would be perpetuated, not ended. He says slavery could be such an evil that it needed to be attacked effectively. You can think about it another way. I mean, uh, you know, let's say you cared about global warming and the environment and creation care. That's a good thing. You can't just go, hey, all of you driving gas-powered cars need to stop. We better stop making concrete. You have to burn fossil fuels to make concrete. No cars, no roads, no planes. If you did that, you wouldn't be very effective. You would be too easy to ignore. What you need is incremental change and new technology. And even to get incremental change and to get people on board, you need to change how people see things. You need to change hearts and minds to make real progress. Paul's doing something similar. The New Testament's doing something similar. And so how does it poison the institution of slavery from the inside out? How does it change the perspective of how we view others? Numerous ways. But because we're getting to the end of our series in Ephesians, let's think back through the letter. In chapter 1, we're told that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We're chosen to be holy and blameless. We're adopted as sons and daughters. We're rescued from our slavery to sin. We're redeemed. We're made new. We're filled with the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance to come. These realities were true for masters and slaves. The slave is now your brother or your sister. You're part of the same family with the same heavenly father. You all share in the same inheritance. The spiritual blessings are all yours in Christ, slave or free. The gospel levels an uneven playing field and makes a family out of us. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul argues that, that Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew, have equal access to God through Christ. The cross has put to death our animosity. He has made us one people. We are his holy temple. We are part of his body. We all have gifts to build the church. We're all called to, give, you know, to live a life worthy of the gospel. This is true of slaves. It's true of masters. The gospel levels this uneven playing field and makes a temple out of all of us, a sacred space in which God dwells by his spirit. Elsewhere, Paul writes that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, 
nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is inviting people to reimagine their reality and their social dynamics in light of the gospel and what Jesus has done for them. You're one in Christ, one body, one temple, one family. And we live in such a bipartisan, polarized day where people are entrenched in their own echo chambers, where confirmation bias is running amok. And we don't even know how to talk to one another anymore. As brothers and sisters, we still need the same type of reimagining today. But I'll give you a light example. Uh, In one study out of the UK, researchers watched how university students responded to smelly, sweaty t-shirts, some of which displayed the logo from their university, while others displayed the logo of another university. And in two different studies that measured self-reported disgust and other various indicators of disgust, researchers noticed that students were far less put off by the smell of those t-shirts they thought were worn by students from their own university. As one author put it, quote, students showed a willingness to put up with their sweaty classmates because they were on their team. Yet those students showed reluctance to extend the same grace towards outsiders. Right? Our tribe's clothes stink less than yours. Our group's clothes stink less than yours. We're the in-group, and we deserve grace, but you don't. And it's like, what does the New Testament say? Well, the New Testament will say, your, your shirt stinks as much as the next person, but you're loved as much as the next person. And God can clean us all up through the cross and by the Spirit, right? All are made in the image of God. All are sinful. All are loved. Equal in creation and equal in salvation. You are all one in Christ, master and slave. All one in Christ. Equal in creation. Equal before the cross. All sinful. All loved. That's the reality the gospel introduces into our relationships, into how we view others. And you can see how this all plays out practically in another New Testament letter called Philemon. It's a tiny letter. It'll take you 10 minutes to read. You should definitely check it out. But the context is that Philemon is a wealthy individual who knows the Apostle Paul. And Paul led him to the Lord and his wife, and there was a church in their home. And they had a good relationship. And Philemon had a bondservant named Onesimus. And Onesimus very likely stole from Philemon, cheated Philemon, and ran away. And Onesimus found the Apostle Paul likely in Rome. And it seems like Onesimus became a Christian and helped Paul with ministry. And Paul eventually sends Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter filled with requests about how Philemon should treat his runaway servant. Under Roman law, Philemon could have put his servant, he could have put Onesimus to death. But listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. It's on the slide, but listen to the language he uses. He says, I am sending him, Onesimus, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. Paul's in prison in Rome. 
But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. So powerful. Like, what does Paul do here? He calls Onesimus his very heart. He expresses affection for Philemon and Onesimus. He loves them both. Both are dear to him regardless of their social position or status. He calls Onesimus his son and Philemon's brother. He says, perhaps the reason he was separated from you, which really was because Onesimus stole and ran, he goes, perhaps the reason was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother. He's not property. He's a man and a brother and a family member. More than that, Paul says, welcome him as you would welcome me. Let his reception be like my reception. Accept Onesimus like you would accept me. Paul, who could order you to do what is right. Paul, who is an apostle. Paul, to whom the resurrected Lord Jesus appeared and commissioned to plant churches. Paul, who received a right hand of fellowship from Peter, James, and John, Jesus' closest friends. Paul, who was one of the most influential thinkers in all of human history. Welcome your runaway slave who probably stole from you the same way you would welcome an apostle in the kingdom of God. Think about that. Let the implications of Paul's request sink in. Treat him like a man. Treat him like a brother. Treat him like you would treat me to whom you owe your very life. How can slavery survive in any meaningful sense if that is now your framework? You're commanded to treat the slave like you treat an apostle in the kingdom of God and in the church. That the injustice and the lack of dignity inherent in slavery or owning another human being as property must wither and die from the inside out. Something new has come into the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus, unleashing like a tornado of grace and liberation and new life into our world. Maybe you remember the opening statement, the New Testament approves of slavery. Therefore, the New Testament approves of something that is morally wrong. I hope we can see that that is a surface level reading. The New Testament doesn't condone slavery or enshrine it as a divine mandate. The scripture regulates slavery as a complex social phenomenon different in many ways than the transatlantic slave trade we're familiar with. More than that, it injects fatal poison into the heart of the institution by making slave and master brothers and sisters in Christ equally loved, equally valuable. And many in church history have seen this. Many of the most influential theologians in church history, like Thomas Aquinas, have argued that slavery 
was a sin. Many popes upheld this condemnation of slavery. It's a matter of history that slavery was condemned in papal bulls in 1462, 1537, 1639, 1741, 1815, and 1839. In America, it was a devoted Puritan, Samuel Sewell, who published the first abolitionist tract in the 18th century. And as I already said, two-thirds of American abolitionists were clergymen. Elijah Lovejoy, Charles Finney, William Lloyd Garrison. And today, while there remains multiple forms of oppression and slavery in our world, the gospel is still God's liberating power at work through the proclamation and action of his people. Speaker Danielle Strickland spent many years working with and befriending women who were prostituted. And it's been called prostitution the world's oldest profession. She calls it the world's oldest oppression. And she knew that studies had shown that in many parts of the world, prostitution was, quote, a slave master that kept women, mostly poor, uneducated ethnic minorities, in absolute hell. And Strickland tells the story about her friend that came out of prostitution, but refused to acknowledge or deal or revisit what had happened to her, which makes sense. And Danielle wisely didn't confront her. She just prayed. And one day this woman had a vision of Jesus as a lion. And she shared with Danielle, and Danielle explained that God was a God of justice And that he was for her. And that Jesus is the line of Judah who promises to set prisoners free and right the wrongs in the world. And after that vision, something shifted in her. And the next day, she was a very tough, hardened woman. The next day, she just started weeping and sobbing. Revisiting her past. And she spoke about this time where she'd worked all night and went back to the hotel in the morning where her boyfriend was. And he took all her money and made her sleep on the floor. And she kept repeating through tears, he made me sleep on the floor, he made me sleep on the floor. Worse things had happened, but that stuck out to her. She was treated like a thing, like a possession lacking value, like a slave. He made me sleep on the floor. The bed is too good for you. But she found healing and freedom through the good news of Jesus. Because at the center of the Christian story is Jesus. Jesus is God who entered into history. Jesus understands our oppression and he painted for us a picture of a better world, the kingdom of God. And then Jesus died for sin and rose again and sent us the Holy Spirit so that we would have power to live out that better world in the broken pieces of this one. And that is our call. That is our mandate to set captives free, healed, restored. You will never sleep on the floor again take my room, live in my house. This is not what has been historically known as the social gospel that minimizes personal sin or neglects the need for repentance or personal trust in the finished work of Jesus. This is not a social gospel that always locates the oppressor without and never acknowledges the oppressor within. This is not a gospel that calls out systems without confronting sinners. This is not a gospel that neglects the fact that the deepest slavery and oppression we experience is the slavery and oppression that results from sin which only Jesus 
can liberate us from. No, this is not the social gospel, but this gospel does have social implications that will never leave unjust structures intact. That slavery in various forms still exists in our world and the good news of Jesus opposes it. And so must those who follow in the way of Jesus because of the true gospel, because of the New Testament, because of Jesus, never in spite of him. And so let me end with these words from the prophet Isaiah chapter 58 to give us a compelling picture of who God calls us to be as a community, as followers of the way of Jesus in the broken pieces of this world. The prophet writes, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild ancient ruins and will raise up age-old foundations. And you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. May this be true of us. In Jesus' name, amen.